The preaching of God's Word then is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and there verses 27 through 29. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29. After having stated the institution of the Lord's Supper, Paul writes, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. These three verses give us our text for this morning as by God's grace, we hope to join together in a week's time and observe the Lord's Supper. And you'll notice that this is something given to all Christians to observe, the Lord's Supper itself. Christ so commissioned that it be observed, and yet, as this chapter indicates, there are ways of abusing such a privilege, and not, as it were, to some little uh, issue, but even unto open judgment. And so we see following this verse that there are those who are weak and sickly and even who have fallen asleep, that is, who have died. They have come under the judgment of God. And the question might be to us in our day, well, why? Why do they come under judgment? And it's because they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in a way that was unworthy of the same. And Paul, as it were, through his counsel, indicates the way of uh, correcting that. And it's through this work of self-examination. This is something that is difficult for us today, because to examine anything demands the attention of your mind. It demands focus, which necessarily demands time. And If anything is among the complaints of our age, it is constantly, I don't have time for that. But you can think for a moment what we do have time for. We have time to go to grocery stores and examine fruit. We have time to order fast food and examine our orders. We have time to go through our house and examine what's going on. We have time to receive a check or payment and examine if it's right and to the full amount. We have time to do many things. There are some who have time to spend literally hours examining social media posts. There are those who have time to do all sorts of other things. And though they call it not examining, yet we can say this, they are observing, they are giving their time to things which at best are secondary, but many times are actually stealing from our personal growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us resolve from the very outset that we would not be among those who say this week, I have no time for this. Because if you and I say we have no time for this, let's be clear, you have no reason to come to the Lord's table next week. Because these things are bound up together. Paul is giving us not an accessory. He's not giving us some addendum. He's not giving us some extra thing that if we want to, we can consider doing. Notice how closely these things are bound in the text. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink 
of that cup. If you hope to come to the Lord's table, if I hope to come to the Lord's table, it is necessary that there is time spent in this personal examination of ourselves in the manner that Paul sets before us. Now, many of us could say, I've come to the Lord's table many times without such self-examination and nothing evil has befallen me. Well, there are several things to answer with that. One, perhaps it is that we were so spiritually dull that we didn't even discern the evils that were coming unto us. But secondly, it may be that the Lord in mercy withheld judgment until the time that we should be better instructed. Whatever the case, our past mercies give us no excuse for future sins. We are to be guided not by the Lord's looking over and pardoning our sins, but rather we are to be guided by the instruction afforded us in His Word. So notice the context. Paul identifies several abuses in verses 20 through 22. And among them, if you were to make it essential, what is it? They were treating the Lord's Supper as a common meal, a meal by which our bodies are fed, a meal by which we would eat and drink and be glad. Not unlike, by the way, brethren, what some today are turning the Lord's Supper into. They make it just a feast of celebration, as if it's a barbecue tomorrow In many places of our land, there will be families gathering and food will be prepared and there will be time spent eating and perhaps even overeating. Well, people had turned the Lord's Supper into that. That's why Paul's able to say that some are even drunken. They've come and they've so filled themselves with this bread and wine that now they're stumbling. They have violated not only the institution of that holy meal, but they have violated very basic standards of morality. Instead of seeing it as a sacred ordinance that holds forth a message of Christ, they had been led by their lusts to turn it into just a common meal. And so what then Paul does is he returns to the institution of the Lord's Supper, verses or verse uh, 23 through 25. This is instructive for us, correcting any abuse in the church. It's to go back to the institution. Christ sees uh, all sorts of abuses on the Sabbath day. What does He do? He goes back to the institution. And the same is true of anything. And so Paul identifies how Christ instituted this. And in doing so, he's reminding the people of God that this is a holy meal meant to hold forth as a sign the truth of Christ Jesus crucified for us. And then you'll notice in verse 26, he explains that, that as often as we partake of this, we are showing, we are proclaiming the Lord's death till He come. It's an exercise of faith, both looking back to His death and looking forward to His return. And then our text, which we'll give more attention to in a moment, But then following that in verses 30 through 32 is more on this topic regarding judgment. And then finally in verse 33 through 34, there are other corrections to implement. But notice our text in particular, verse 27, we find a sober warning. 
Notice how universal this is. Whosoever. Oh, we rejoice in that word when it's applied by Christ. Whosoever will may come. What a blessed truth that is. It limits no one. It says, if you're willing, come. But here, it's in the use of a warning. Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What's being said? Well, the word unworthily is referring to the manner of partaking. And so it's later stated, verse 29, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily. The word unworthily is dealing with the eating and drinking. If we're partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily, it's not saying that there's ever a time when we ourselves will be of such value and worth that we have a right to come by our own righteousness. It's speaking rather of the abusing of that ordinance in the manner that we partake of it. And you can see that in context, of course. Notice the warning that such shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. There is a crime committed when such is done. We'll talk more about that, the Lord willing. But notice, it has to do with Christ's death. In verse 28, there's the exhortation. What are we to do to prevent our unworthily partaking of the Lord's Supper? We're to examine ourselves. Let a man examine himself. The word examine has to do with proving himself. It could be translated scrutinize. Oh, we don't like scrutiny, do we? We don't like people to look over us and say, oh, I found this out of order. Oh, I see that's out of order. Oh, I see that this is not in accordance to what should be done. And yet, Paul says, that's what we're to do with ourselves. Now, brethren, we should know this right away. It's far easier for you and for me to scrutinize others. We say, oh, look how they're doing this. Oh, look how they're saying that. Look how they're using their time, misusing their time. Look how they're uh, ignorant of so many faults that possess them. And yet all the while we have this plank shoved out of our eyes, as it were, going forth, blinding ourselves to ourselves and our own sins. Paul says, here's the first and foremost fix. Turn your gaze upon yourself and examine, scrutinize, prove yourselves. But notice, it's to the end that one should eat and drink. And so, embedded in that is the discovering of God's grace, is the seeing of evidence that we are His and have a right to the table. And it concludes with a warning that those who would eat and drink unworthily would bring upon themselves damnation or judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Brethren, whatever else can be said of this passage, we see this, that it is a Christian duty that each one examines himself before partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's not, in other words, a secondary thing. It's not something that the church by tradition has manufactured. It's certainly not a Reformation or post-Reformation development. It is a scriptural demand that is placed upon even the earliest disciples as is here found in Scripture. 
So when people say things like this in our day, oh, to examine yourselves is to engage in the Puritan acrobatics of, you know, this morbid introspection. Well, we don't doubt that people can become morbidly introspective and can separate the examination from the hope of the gospel. It would be nice for someone to point out evidence that the Puritans were ever guilty of this instead of just asserting it as much. But whatever the case about them, notice it is given to us by the Apostle. It's given to us in the Scriptures, which means it's given to us by the Lord. That if we forbear and neglect this, it's not that we're pushing against some uh, development of later Christianity. We're actually pushing off from the ordinance of Christ. However, because examination is so little known today, it's helpful for us to consider what this practice is, that by God's grace we may both better uh, fulfill it and likewise know more fully the blessing of the Lord's Supper to which this examination prepares us. So consider then three things this morning. Firstly, the meaning of examination. Secondly, the reason for examination. And thirdly, the way of examination. The meaning, the reason, and the way of examination. Well, firstly then, what is the meaning of examination? Paul says, let a man examine himself. Notice, firstly, the meaning includes an action. There's an action in this uh, responsibility. It's to examine. As indicated already, the word means something along the lines of proving, of scrutinizing, of looking over with diligence. We know this in a variety of analogies. You go to the doctor for a physical examination. What's the doctor doing? Well, hopefully the doctor doesn't just welcome you into the office and say, yeah, you look okay, now carry on. Or, you know, I've got this pain in my side and it acts up when I eat these foods and then other issues take place and so on. And the doctor says, well, it could be a lot of things. You know, go see the receptionist, pay your bill, and then, you know, come back in six months' time. Whatever that is, that's not an examination. Many of us fear the examination of a skilled practicer of, practitioner of medicine because they give a comprehensive look. They're looking at things physical that they can touch, and they look at things that we can't see ourselves with our unaided eye, and so they perform x-rays. They do all sorts of tests. They perhaps test various systems, the glandular system, and so on, in order to get a whole scope of what's leading to this cause. We know this, of course, in various ways. We go in with a cough, and we say, you know, I think it's this, that, or the other, and maybe we're right. But then they run a test and say, well, you're wrong. If we had treated it the way you thought to have been treated, nothing would have changed, right? Perhaps we think, oh, I've just got a sore throat because of X, Y, or Z. And they say, maybe it's a cold. Not to know that actually in the ventilation system, there's black mold, right? There's all sorts of things that physically get examined for the sake of what? for the sake of improving our health. Well, likewise, spiritually, to examine is to examine not our outward health, but our spiritual health. Notice, let a man examine himself. There's a testing, there's a trying in order to assess evidence. People who have 
pools or who run public pools have to test the pH of the, of the water and the various other chemicals that are in there so it doesn't do harm to one's body. And so they have these strips, they dip it in, and they have it color-coded. They examine it. Is it right? Oh, no, this is out of balance. And so they have to add these, or they have to improve and increase the water. Well, the same is true of our souls. We're examining it against a standard. We're not examining it against our own thoughts. That's not examining. Every student would love to examine their test and knowledge after their own knowledge. So they come to a math problem, and they say, well, I think it's this. They, don't, they would love for the teacher not to look at it, and they grade their own work. That's not being examined. That's being perhaps misled. But when we take a test, there's a standard that then assesses the test's answers and lets us know, was our answer right or was it wrong? If it's not math, perhaps, how close was it? How full was it? How uh, comprehensive was it? And the same is true of our souls. In order to examine ourselves, we have to know the evidence. We have to know what we're looking for. Family some years ago went to Arkansas, and there's this little park you can go to, and you can dig for diamonds. It's a pastime, of course. Well, we don't know what a diamond looks like in the rough and so on. And so they give you these little pictures. Look, this is what you're looking for. If you see this, that's a diamond. And well, there are these other things as well. Otherwise, you'd just be going and grabbing all sorts of rocks and rubble and so on and thinking, maybe I've got it. But you inspect it and so on. And if you actually have a diamond, you buy a diamond, what happens? It gets examined according to standards of clarity and so forth. And the same is true of our souls. We have to know the standards against which we're examining our souls. That standard has to do with God's Word. It's not by examining against so-and-so. It's not examining against our thoughts and our own intentions. It's examining ourselves against the standard of truth. And so in order to perform this action, we must have the standard of God's Word which tells us the marks of grace, which tells us the nature and meaning of the sacrament, which tells us what repentance is and what it's not. Otherwise, we can never fulfill this action. In order to perform the action, we must know the evidence which is the standard by which we are to examine ourselves. Secondly, notice that this action has a subject. I imagine that examination would take off tomorrow if the verse read this way, let a man examine his neighbor. If it said that, you could almost guarantee that people would be ready to go at it. Oh, well, we have warrant. Let me start examining everyone else. And isn't this what happens already in the world? There's examination of this and that and all these things. And so soon as it comes to the one who's examining others, they say, why don't you stay in your own lane? Why don't you mind yourself? But notice the subject to be examined is himself. The action of examining according to the standard of God's Word causes the light to shine upon our own lives. Thomas Watson speaks in another work, and he says, The eye can see everything 
but itself. In order to see itself, it demands a mirror. This is instructive for us because we can often perceive the faults of others fairly well. Now, there are many failures. We can't always perceive the intention and, oh, how we love to invent motives that are never there. And we read into things and so on. But we can hear words that are spoken and we say, oh, that's off. We can see things that aren't done and we can say, that's wrong. But when it comes to ourselves, we are our worst advocate. How so? Well, because we're great at excusing ourselves. We're great at saying, well, this isn't that bad. I really intended such. This isn't that bad. I really wanted to do this, and so on. We place ourselves under examination. We're looking at our faith. We're looking at our love, our repentance. We're looking at our knowledge of the Lord's Supper. We're examining these things, which frankly is difficult. Think of it. If you have a pain in your arm, you protect the pain. You don't have any desire to take something that will prod and poke in that pain. If you have a toothache, you do everything you can to numb the pain. You don't let anything go near it. But what does a dentist do if you have a toothpick or toothache? He takes instruments and he pokes and you writhe in pain and you sit there in anguish. It's something that only few could ever think to perform on themselves. Brethren, spiritual examination is far more difficult than physical. It takes far more skill, far more care, far more resolve than it would take to examine your body for any ailment. It demands a faithful dealing with your own soul. It demands that we cut off all flattery. It demands that we lay no excuse next to the discovered sin. But it also demands that we deal faithfully with the evidence of graces. There are many Christians who, for whatever cause, think that it's a mark of piety to look at the evidence of God's grace and say, that's not grace, that's not faith, that's not love, that's not holiness. Well, that's not dealing faithfully either. That if we find faith, though it might be weak faith, though we find love, though it may be little love, it's still true. If you're digging for diamonds, you don't look at a small diamond and say, that's not a diamond. You say, it's a small diamond. It's dealing faithfully. And so this examining of ourselves demands faithfulness, both to perceive ourselves in the light of God's Word and to examine ourselves faithfully, that if we discover sin, we don't cover it up, we don't excuse it, we don't minimize it. And if we discover grace, likewise we don't minimize it, and so on. But neither do we exaggerate either. We're dealing faithfully in these things. And notice the goal of this action. It's not to the end that we just sit examining ourselves. It's so let him eat and drink. It's to the end that we would discover the right to come to the table. That there is the evidence of grace in us by the Lord's work that we may come having repented of our sins, having trusted in Christ, 
having cultivated intimacy with the Lord, and so come. There's much more that can be said, but we move now to the reason for this examination. Sometimes children ask, why do I need to go to the dentist? And of course, as a child, it is among the worst things to know that your dentist appointment is coming. However, simple medicine demonstrates that there are massive issues that can come through the neglect of dental hygiene. We don't mean whitening of teeth, but rather caring for the health of gums and teeth and other such things. And so the reason that we examine our teeth and mouths is in order to promote health. Well, what's the reason for spiritual examination with con- in context of the Lord's Supper? Firstly, the reason has to do with the privilege of intimacy. Now, this is immediately before our text, but notice the words of institution. The bread which is broken has these words with them. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Christ is placing into our hands and into our mouths the very sign of His body. He's not just displaying it up in the air. He's placing it in our hands. It's impossible for us to imagine truly and fully what would happen if we lived among the disciples with the knowledge we now have and we saw Jesus Christ. Oh, how we would prize nearness to Him. Is it not one of the greatest privileges recorded of John the Apostle that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved, upon whose breast John did lay his head? Such intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. But brethren, at the Lord's table, we have the very sign of His body given to us. And likewise, notice the cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. He's not just reminding, he's applying to us the knowledge and by grace the benefit of his redemption. There's no greater intimacy among the ordinances of God. There's none. Hearing God's voice is a privilege indeed. But to hear His voice, and we say reverently, to receive His kiss is more intimate. And this is what He does. He comes to us, and He embraces us, and He kisses us upon our cheeks as a sign of the greatest intimacy that one could ever know. That intimacy demands that we come prepared. That we come saying, Oh God, you call me to the highest privilege that I should receive unto myself the mark, the sign, the seal of the love of Christ by His atoning death. And so let me prepare myself and examine myself. Every bride prepares herself for her wedding. Now, it may not be to the same indulgence that we see so Foolishly, many times in our day, the extravagances of our culture, but every bride, even in simple ways, prepares herself for that happy occasion. 
Under the Old Testament, the Passover required such similar preparing of oneself that they were to search their houses for various things as they're looking for leaven and casting it out. And similarly, we, in having the intimacy of Christ under the new covenant, are searching our souls for the leaven of sin that we might there by grace enjoy the fellowship of Christ among the most intimate ways that can ever be known in this world. Well, another reason is the danger of incurring guilt. It's important to see these things together. With every privilege that is neglected, there is a danger that is brought about. If we neglect the privilege of intimacy, we incur uh, guilt. And here, verse 27 states what that guilt is. Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord worthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What is this? It's a crime against Christ. Understand this for a moment. If we come in an unworthy manner to the Lord's Supper, it's not a little slip that we sort of catch ourselves. It's not a little stumble that we dust off our knees and so on. We incur guilt before the Lord. We commit a crime against Christ. And what is it? Strong language. Guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. To take these signs unto ourselves without faith, without repentance, without feeding upon Christ, is to take these signs as an enemy against Christ. And to make ourselves understand the implication of these words, murderers of Christ. If you come to the Lord's table and partake unworthily, you incur the guilt of of murdering Christ. Brethren, that ought to give us tremendous pause. It ought not, as we'll see, keep us from coming to the Lord's table. It ought to make us to examine ourselves, discover sin, repent, renew faith, cling to Christ. But let's be clear. If we fail to do those things and we come to the Lord's table, though we eat and we feel warm and we're happy, we go home, we eat lunch, we eat dinner, the next day we go to work, we go to vacation, we do whatever else, we walk as those whose mouths and hands are dripping with the blood of Christ and we stand guilty. And so think for a moment. It makes sense, doesn't it? why Satan stirs up people to neglect these things. He stirs up professing Christians to neglect these things because in their partaking of the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy fashion, they're incurring guilt without repentance that shall prove their own damnation. This is why in the early church, and we see it in the early church of the apostles. This is why even in medieval times, and this is why the Reformation and post-Reformation and beyond, those who understood these things took care to provide those means by which men would be warned of the danger of incurring this guilt. 
Brethren, take seriously the word of God. Let a man examine himself. Why? Verse 29, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. This doesn't necessarily mean eternal damnation, though it can. But it's linked in context, notice, to those who are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Now, whereas we have no doubt but that the weakness and the sickliness and the death that Paul refers to had physical causes, just as when Herod stood up and gave an oration and the men said, This is the voice of a God and not a man. And when he did not give God glory, he was plagued with worms and so died. It was a physical cause, but let's be clear. It was a physical cause that was placed by God. And so these men and women could have gone to the doctor and the doctor said, listen, you're sick because you've got the flu. You're sick because you have COVID. You're sick because you have cancer. You're sick because you have this disease or that disease. Your loved one died because they contracted the plague. All of those things are true. And yet all of those things are under the providential and sovereign hand of God. And so though they are sick, though they are dead, they are struck sick, struck dead by God. This is a tremendous danger. The danger of incurring guilt leads to the danger of suffering judgment. And so Paul indicates, again beyond our passage, that if we, verse 31, would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. You see, examining ourselves brings us to discover sin, to condemn sin, to turn from sin, and to follow Christ. That's judging ourselves. And when we fail to do that, we go before the Lord and say, I won't do it. I want you to judge me. Oh God, spare us from provoking Him ways. Here is then some of the reason for so examining. Well, how is it that we should examine? We can say many things, but we present two things that will help us examine ourselves that we may then eat of that bread and drink of that cup not unworthily. Firstly, we are to secure a true knowledge of the qualifications of coming to the Lord's table. And let's say negatively what those qualifications aren't. It doesn't demand perfect, absolute conformity to the Lord's law. If that were the case, if that were what were required, there would be zero people present at the Lord's table. Peter, of course, partook of the Lord's Supper and yet had the seeds of what would sprout forth later that season and bring forth denying of Christ. And likewise, did all the apostles have sins? So it's not the presence of sin that disqualifies us. But what is it that does qualify us? Well, firstly, it does demand saving faith in Christ Jesus. This is there in the verse immediately preceding, 
as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show, you proclaim the Lord's death. It doesn't just mean objectively, though that is true, but think, these means are being taken by me. I'm taking the Lord's body. I'm taking the Lord's blood. And I'm not just taking it and passing it along. I'm taking it unto me. I'm proclaiming Christ is mine. He's my Lord. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. The cup of the New Testament has been spilled over unto me so that the blessings of the covenant of grace may fall upon me. And so we're realizing if we are to come to the Lord's table, one qualification is that I am persuaded and have true grounds of assuring myself that I am trusting in Christ. It doesn't mean that that saving faith is in the maturest display, but it does mean that it's there. You can think of it this way. If to get into a certain uh, assembly, you have to have a ticket. Maybe that ticket was given a year ago. Well, it doesn't have to be that the ticket is in good repair. It just has to be the ticket. It doesn't have to be in the vibrant colors that it was originally printed on, printed with. It just has to be legitimate. And so as we examine ourselves, we're not looking for the outshining strength of faith necessarily. We're looking for the reality of faith. Is it there? Am I trusting in Christ as my Savior? Now we can go further and assess the strength of it, and that's needed, the maturity of it, But fundamentally, what qualifies one for coming is the evidence, the possession of true saving faith in Christ. Secondly, which is joined, of course, with saving faith, is repentance. These are twins bound together, which are secured and conceived of in the same womb and are brought forth from the same mother and are never separated. If one has saving faith, they will necessarily have repentance. When one's repentance begins to dull and, as it were, darken, it doesn't mean that they aren't saved, but what it does do is it lessens the evidence and the assurance of saving faith. And if there's no repentance then what it most certainly does is it calls into question the profession of saving faith. So when people say today, listen, I believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm a believer, and yet their lives are directly contrary to the basics of the Ten Commandments, there's no credible profession of faith. Let's be clear. It doesn't mean there isn't the chance of them being saved. It doesn't mean that they aren't saved but we're left with no ability to ascribe to them the credible profession of faith. Why? Because the one who believes upon Christ is called to repent, is called to turn from sin. And when there is a lack of turning from sin, it necessarily calls into question the validity of the profession of faith. This means several things. If we're going to understand this qualification of repentance well, we have to know what repentance looks like. Can you answer the question, what is repentance? Hopefully you can rattle off the catechism. But even if you can't do that, 
Can you give a biblically informed response to what repentance is? Because if you can't, how can you begin to examine yourself as to whether or not repentance is active in your life? Related to this is love to God. Do you have more to express than that I think I love God? I feel that I love God. I have warm fuzzies that flow over me when I think about God. Because if one loves God, do you know what the Bible says? They'll keep His commandments. Do you know that from the early church through the Reformation, there was the requirement for anyone who would come to the Lord's table to be able to rattle off the Ten Commandments? Today, people say, where's that in the Bible? Where is it required of people to know the Ten Commandments to come to the Lord's table? Well, we could get smart back. But instead of that, answering spitefulness with spitefulness, consider this. How do you know that you love God unless you see the evidence of obedience to His commandments? And how do you know whether you're obeying God's commandments unless you know what those commandments are? You can't begin to examine something without the standards known. And you can't begin to see the evidence of something unless you know what those evidences are. And so if we're going to assess repentance and love to God, we have to know what the evidence of those things are. Now, in our day... It is frankly depressing how few people can actually say the Ten Commandments. And we don't mean in every jot and tittle of all that's required or of all that is there in the full statement of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. We mean they can't so much as say things like this. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day. They can't say as much as that. They can't say, well, I know there are Ten Commandments, but I only know six of them. You know. Brethren, that's not a sign of, oh, the church is gracious and compassionate. It's actually a sign of lack of compassion, lack of care, that the church doesn't do better to instruct and guide and develop the understanding of these things. Parents, you have a God-given mandate to ensure that your children know these things. Whatever else you fail in, if you fail in this, you fail in your greatest calling. If you aren't teaching your children the rudiments, the basics of God's love and God's law, hear this well. You are a failure as a parent. If your children are able to pass through your family and not know the Ten Commandments, you have failed. It doesn't mean that they are without grace. It doesn't mean that they cannot be converted. But what you failed in is this. You've kept from them the means to promote their understanding of themselves which better supplies them with an understanding of the Savior. If you want your children to know Christ Jesus and the wonder of His love, your children must know the wickedness of sin, its heinousness, its judgment, and so on. If you want them to see the beauty of holiness, they have to know what holiness is, how to define it, and so on. 
What should we do if right now our hearts smite us? Well, you could be angry that such was said. You could come up with this excuse and that excuse and other things. But you could also confess it to the Lord and say, I failed, or I have failed, or I am failing. But the Lord's given you life still. And so you can, by God's grace from this day, it doesn't matter if your children are young or if they're out of the house, you can implore the Lord to help you still as a parent to teach and train and cultivate an understanding of these things with them. But brethren, let's remember, whatever of our children or others, here's the question to ask. Do I know the Ten Commandments? Do I have a clear understanding of the standard by which I can be judged and examined? This goes both for the first table, the first four commandments, the second table, the last six commandments from the fifth down. And the reason that that's important is because the one who says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar, says John in 1 John. But further, as we seek to press on, all of this is not meant to build up some form of Pharisaism where we can say, listen to my children, rattle off the commandments. Listen to me, I can rattle off the commandments. Well, the Pharisees could do it, and godless men after them could do it. And so another qualification that we can look at is communing with Christ. There's a dear elder in our presbytery who has influenced us all and is asking the question to those who apply to church membership. And he asks them, why is Christ beautiful to you? Tell me why you find Christ lovely. And it strikes perhaps at first as sort of like, what are we doing? Are we becoming Pentecostal and charismatic and so on? No, we're becoming biblical. Psalm 45, thou art fairest of all men. Grace in thy lips is poured, and so on. The idea is this. We spend time with those we find lovely. We love to be with those we find lovely. It's a mark of grace when instead of being constrained to read God's Word, that we start to say, I want to read God's Word. And why do I want to read God's Word? Not so I can study for this degree or impress others, but because it's the voice of my Savior. I want to hear Him. It's a mark of grace when instead of just saying, I have to go to church, we say, I want to go and worship the Lord. I joyed when to the house of God, go up, they said to me. It's because we're communing with Christ. Christ says it in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me. Live in me. Dwell in me. And I in you. This communing with Christ, that as we read His Word, we're seeking Christ. As we sing His praise, we're singing to Christ. As we hear His Word preached, we're hearing the voice of our Savior. When we come to the Lord's table, Though it's called communion, it's not where communion begins or ends. It's where communion floods upon us, enriching us far more than we have been to that point. Well, there's much more, these being but a few of those things. Finally, the reason, or rather, finally, instead of only securing a knowledge of the qualifications we have to secure a true knowledge as well 
of ourselves. We're brief in this because we've touched on it. We can think in two things. We need to know what the mirrors that will help us to see ourselves are. And then we have to assess the view we perceive in those mirrors. What are the mirrors? Well, one mirror that reflects our own image back is our outward behavior. And so you can think in this way. What are my actions? What are my, what's my speech? How do I spend my time? But you can think of it as well this way. Not only what is my speech, but what is my silence? What have I been silent about? Not only what are my actions, but what am I not doing that I should be doing? Right? Those are the mirrors that start to give us an angle. Today, you can buy all sorts of mirrors, some that are built so that you see every angle. You can even see behind yourself. And for a thorough examination, you need all of those angles. You don't look at yourself straight on. Teenage boys love to do this. They fix their hair looking straight on. They walk away never looking at the side, and everything's messed up. They learn then to get mirrors that help them see on the other side and so on so that it's a little bit more presentable. Well, there are so many Christians that go and they look at one thing, typically outward behavior, and only what they're doing instead of what they're not doing. And they walk away forgetting that they've been sleeping with the back of their head upon their pillow, and the back of their head is flattened, as it were, and they go out unpresentable. One mirror is our outward behavior. Another mirror is our inward desires and thoughts. So Christ gets at this in the Sermon on the Mount when He speaks of, Thou shalt not kill, and then He goes through words and thoughts. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He goes through words and thoughts. He's getting us to have the mirror go inward. What are my desires? Not merely what am I doing or not doing, but why am I doing it? Why am I not doing it? Another mirror is to consider more specifically not only our public love to Christ, but our private love to Christ. When I sit down in private and I read His Word, why am I doing it? Is it possible that some here would have to say, do I sit down to read His Word? Is it possible that some have to say, do I sit down to lead my family in worship? Brethren, what that demands of you, if that mirror has nothing to reflect, is instant and immediate confession and repentance. It's not something to say, well, after the Lord's Supper, I'll get family worship on the docket. You get home today and you lead your family in worship. If you're mouthing off to your spouse, you don't say, well, after the Lord's Supper, I'll deal with that. You go to your wife or your husband after this service and you confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. Children, you don't say, well, you know, after this I'll deal with it. You deal with it immediately with your parents. If internet's being a distraction, cancel the internet. Throw your computer away. You say, I can't do that. You know, let me ask you this. Is it better to suffer the difficulty of radical repentance or to go to hell under the profession of Christ. The issue is that we are more caring for 
the feeling of comfort than it is that we are more caring for the promotion of holiness. These mirrors will give us an accurate reflection. And we have to ensure that the mirrors are being judged by the light of Scripture and not by the light of artificial supplies by the world. Well, brethren, we close then with this. There's clearly a correction to our day's carelessness. More time is spent examining things that are transient, passing, and forgotten. Do you remember, some of you will, when the first iPhone came out, all the stuff that was going on with that. Look what can be done. I remember looking at one, and this man who had it showed me uh, the radar, and I was thinking, this is amazing. In one's own hand, they can see the radar of you know, the whole nation. And now every new edition of a smartphone comes out with all the fanfare. But so soon as a new one comes out, a new one is getting developed, and the old ones are forgotten. Oh, you have that edition, you have that version. It gets forgotten. How many times have you looked at a computer or smartphone and looked at all the specifications? And you have these search tools and you put up this one against that one and against another one. You say, oh, look at the memory. Oh, look at the camera. Oh, look at this and that and how many apps it can hold and all it can do. And look at how many cameras it has and all this. And then five years pass and you've forgotten all those specifications. Those have become obsolete and now you're looking at the newest thing. That's our world. We're constantly examining things, frankly, that mean nothing. That actually promote well-living, good living, in no actual way. Oh, does it promote convenience? Sure. Does it promote productivity? Perhaps. But does it promote your spiritual being? Not at all. But you know what will? Gracious, evangelical examining of yourselves before the light of the Lord unto repentance and faith. There is then this closing exhortation. You and I, if to do these things, must, must set aside time to do it. None of this happens accidentally. When was the last time you accidentally found yourself in the doctor's office for an examination? When was the last time you accidentally found your car in the garage for an examination? When was the last time you accidentally found food in your hand to examine it? None of it happens by accident. It's all purposed. We schedule these things. I've got to go to the doctor. What's my calendar like? Put it there. Hey, wife. Hey, husband, I'm going to be out at this time because I'm going to be doing this. you got to go grocery shopping. You put on the calendar. You go and do it. You say, listen, I won't be at home this time because I'm going to be getting groceries. We put it down. We schedule it. We do it. And it's these things which lead us to say we don't have time to do the most important things. Brethren, it's not those things which cause it. It's our priorities. It's what we're determining to use our time for. No one here can legitimately say, I don't have time this week to engage in meaningful, scriptural, evangelical examination of myself. What you can say is, I have a lot of commitments that need to be reevaluated 
and transformed in order to make way for this. You might have to say, I have some conversations I have to have with my husband, with my wife, with my children, with my job, with whatever else. Maybe you have to take a day off and lose a day's pay. But that's worth examining yourself in order to draw near to the Lord in the confidence of His love, of His grace, of His acceptance. You must set aside time. And when set aside, you must honor that time. Have you ever been in a meeting with somebody? You scheduled the meeting. They scheduled the meeting. And all they do, the whole meeting is, oh, sorry, and they're on their phone checking this. Oh, wait a second, I got a phone call. And you're thinking to yourself, what are you doing? Like, we scheduled this together, and now you're taking phone calls while we're supposed to be talking. Oh, you know, it'll be quick. It's just a text, da-da-da-da. And the whole time, what could have been meaningful is overrun by this person's distraction from the actual appointment. All of us know what it is to have scheduled time with the Lord, and He never saying, hold on a second, got to get to something else. You know, I've got Jupiter spinning at a certain rate. I've got to make sure it keeps doing that. I've got these stars of the galaxy I know by name. He comes and He's, as it were, ready. And He has all of His promises before us. And we say, you know, I wonder what we're doing tomorrow. You know, oh yeah, this is an important passage, but, you know, did I take care of the garbage Did I make sure that I followed up on this email? Did I go and feed these things? And did I take care of that and the other thing? And our mind is anywhere but the place it's supposed to be. If we are scheduling the time, we must honor that time, which means we prepare ahead. We have the Bible passages chosen. We've talked to our families and said, I have an hour set apart this day for this purpose. Don't come and ask. We also give time to others in our family. Hey, you've got a lot on your plate. Let me take that off of you for the season that you can engage in these spiritual blessings. And as you do, beware of looking only at actions. Beware of thinking to purchase from Christ. Beware of avoiding looking unto Christ and trusting in Him. Brethren, as you do, you'll discover a cause for concern. You'll discover sin. You'll discover little grace. But as you do, what do you do with it? You own it before the Lord and say, bring blessing, bring forgiveness, bring help. You'll discover cause for hope. What do you do with it? Thank you, God, that there is faith. Thank you, God, that there is love. And as you think upon the Lord, you cultivate the yearning request, O God, Draw me that I may run after you. May the Lord so bless. Stand with me for prayer.